Love the cases. Love the clauses. Love the adverbs and the antecedents. Love the words. From ELFM. In Our Element, a poet's inquiry into climate change. We come from fire, we come from snow. Episode 8, Space. Bring you our gold, can you turn it into home? No, you can't turn it into home. Space is what holds all the other elements together, what they move around in. As we also occupy space, it is our field of operation. One extreme response to the climate crisis is to propose moving from our desecrated Earth to begin the anthropocentric enterprise all over again and colonising another planet. A more sustainable and timely form of space exploration is considering how we might choose to make space for solitude and reflection to broaden and deepen our perspective on time and the cycles of nature. Non-linear, they don't follow clock time or man-made schedules. Connecting with that deeper awareness, we might wake up to the fact of impermanence and with kindness and compassion, recognise the inevitability of death. We've taken death out of our living lives. Poet Larry Butler. We need to live with the dying. And the dying is happening all the time. It's happening right now as we're speaking. There are people dying, there are leaves dying, there are flowers dying. That space to really appreciate not only the grief around death, but also the beauty of it, because there is beauty in dying, I think. There's some talk about the good death, but what about the beautiful death? And we think of the beautiful death of autumn, you know, when we see the beauty of the trees that are singing their silent song before they fall. Death connects us all. On an individual, relative level, everybody and everything dies and comes to an end. On the level of quantum physics, a continuum may be possible, with matter or energy vibrating through space-time forever. Borges caught a sense of that when he wrote, Death is just infinity, closing in. My little great-niece Heidi, she had leukaemia and she died just a few weeks before her fifth birthday. Poet Sheila Templeton a huge trauma in her family. She was actually in bed with a parent on either side and she just slipped away quietly. And her dad said to me uh, when he was talking about it, he said, and together we washed her. And I just, I thought, oh, that is so beautiful. And it just seemed to me that that engagement with, with death as well as life is something that we need. As we face a world that is changing before our eyes, 
glaciers melting, forests burning, insects dying in enormous numbers, creatures going extinct and human beings dying or displaced because of floods, drought, famine and wars, all caused by climate change. Many people are experiencing feelings of grief, sadness, despair and disorientation. How do we meet that space of loss and absence? How do we live our lives to the full in the short span that we have? How do we live our dying? Larry Butler and Sheila Templeton in Glasgow have just co-edited an anthology of poetry and prose called Living Are Dying. And I've been working with Sheila for probably three years on this book. We've been in a group together for a number of years called Dialogue, D-I-E-A-L-O-G, where we talk about death and dying. And it is creating a space where we can talk where you can really open up to what you're feeling and thinking about death, your own death, your family's death, friends, the death of the world, the death of our planet. I don't think I ever thought that I, I needed such a space. It was really bumping into Larry at the wake of our dear friend who had just died. And I had just had so much bereavement in my life at that point. And I turned to Larry and said something about how facing my own mortality was suddenly something I couldn't avoid anymore. I think I'd managed to avoid it nicely for 70 odd years. We divorce ourselves from the process of death and dying nowadays. And, you know, dying is taken care of by often doctors and medics and hospitals and undertakers. People are really quite happy, I think, or they think they're happy, to have the separation between life and death and keep death in a nice hygienic little place. And, and I don't think it's good for our souls or our emotions to do that. I asked Sheila to read her poem from the anthology, which is in Doric or Abedonian Scots. It has a beautiful music, and though you may not understand every word, I think you'll catch her drift. Grief is the, the price for love. This poem came because I, I had just lost our dearly beloved cat, and so I wanted to write about this experience and, and I tried and tried and everything, it was not working. And what came up for me was this memory, maybe 50 odd years ago, of my grandfather deciding that his dog, he was very, very old and um, suffering. And my grandfather had made this decision to, well, to have him put down. But he did it himself. But it just this this memory just came up as poems often do. And so this was the poem that got written for me to express that grief. Learning about love. He carried Paddy to the car, the all blue bottle Morris. They didn't come home till afternoon. The usual time for their entry, 
garten we dangling leggy hair or rabbit. It was still winter time, but a soft day, so a grave could be dug as easy as that can ever be. When the tall chill, my granda, come round the side of the house, cradling a small black tyke, swaddled in a sack. Nobody helped, and nobody hindered. Even we bairnies didn't ask. Granny was baking, filling the kitchen with a mound of gowden bannocks. He sat outside to clean his gun, then washed himself at the kitchen sink, forsaken our new bathroom upstairs. I learned about love that day. He would never have used such a word. Personal grief. When we start talking about our griefs around deaths or loss of any kind, sometimes it triggers a response that is much bigger. I went to bed thinking about my son and what had happened to him yesterday or something like that. You know, I wake up in the morning and suddenly I'm thinking about the, the fires in Australia. Why am I doing that? It's some personal grief opens out into a greater grief, a grief for the world, a grief for what's happening. And that could be different situations that are going on in the world. A lot of it probably related to climate change, but not exclusively. Could relate to war, could relate to famine in places. But these things are all interconnected. And I think climate change, certainly one of the roots into what's happening in the world and why we have a great grief about it. I can go back probably 65 years, uh, back to when I was a boy in California growing up in probably the most fertile valley of California, Santa Clara Valley, where it was the prune capital of the world. We had cherry orchards, vineyards. It was a beautiful valley. And by the time I left there, all the orchards were dug up, all the vineyards were dug up, asphalted over, shopping malls made, it's now no longer known as Santa Clara Valley. Locally, it's known as Silicon Valley. I can't even recognize my childhood when I, go, when I visited there. And I have a lot of grief about that. And I didn't realize how much grief I had until I, until I came away from there. I'm interested in the way that in, in telling the truth about it, facing it directly, actually helps us make more of the lives that we have. Once you've faced your demons and once you've expressed your grief and integrated that into your being, there's more of you can connect with life itself. You live a better life. I've often thought that when I look back on periods of my life that I'm, I'm almost asleep um, un until I dare to unpack a lot of you know, unpack the grief, un unpack the sadness, and then it it, it energizes me enormously. It's it, it's really impossible to you. Know, I think to be um, truthfully creative unless I do that. Like laughter, like yawning, tears are contagious, 
And if you are listening to somebody speaking about something that they are really touched by and their tears are rolling down their cheeks, you cannot help but feel a sense of empathy and connection with them. And tears will start filling your own eyes. And I think that sense of the eyes wash out the, the pain. And when you finish your crying, which may take some time, then you do see with new eyes, it clears you. You could get a sense of clarity coming up and you start to see things differently and you see your own life differently. The other thing that I think about it, about really, really acknowledging the fact of our own mortality and and mourning deeply for ourselves and the planet is that, as you say, Larry, it triggers empathy and it helps us to be kinder to ourselves and each other because we see that this is the state we're in. This is what it's like. This is our story. And the only response to that is, as you say, great heart, great courage, great kindness. You know, sometimes we think of this thing being a blank space, a void, an emptiness. But actually, it's what the Tibetan teacher Sultri Malioni calls the pregnant zero. It's full of all the seeds of new life. And that's what happens in terms of the cycle as well, isn't it? That we, we recognize that um, maybe it's our time to, to leave and for, for new life to take over. It goes on like that. Every day, people are dying. But every day, new babies are being born. And that's just going on endlessly every single day. There's a spiral formation so that it's not just going round and round. There's a spiral. And, and it also that, you know, that replicates the image that we use for the DNA as well. So it's got something, a, a very uh, potent image, a symbol for life itself. I go to my allotment uh, most mornings when it's, a, when it's not pouring with rain. And I go there to potter at this time of year, pick raspberries and, and black currants and things. And I also sit by a little pond that I made with my partner. And a little pond has a sculpture in it. It was, comes from Ascent up in the Northwest Scotland, a beautiful stone. It's not really a sculpture, it's a found piece. And on it is carved four words spiraling up the way. So you can't read it unless you walk all the way around it. And in the summer, you can't read it at all because there's too many leaves. You can only read bits of the letters. And they're very simple four words. And for me, they're about living well. And they're in a spiral going up the way. And it's simply, the four words are be more selfless. Be more selfless. And when I can achieve that, I live well. I think that you are both grandparents, and I wondered how that affected the way that you thought about the climate emergency. I think what it does for me is it increases my commitment to engage with what's happening in the world in whatever way I can, whether that's editing a book called Living Our Dying or singing with my choir, Protest in Harmony, writing poems about my sons and my grandson, whatever it is, it makes me in a way more alive, more wanting to make a difference, make a contribution. That sense of wanting to really connect with them now, knowing that I'm going to be dead when they're, when they're adults, you know, that, and, and that sense of just what can I do to make a difference now to their lives in the future? 
And I, I keep trying to speculate about what the world will be like for him, my grandson. And in many ways, I just I can't imagine. But I, I obviously long for the world still to be. I mean, that sounds a bit dramatic, but, you know, for it to be a world that that he can live in without so many of the compromises that we're seeing just now. I, I have to say I alternate between despair on this one, but that doesn't win. What's much stronger is the optimism of new life. Unlike the physics of carbon emissions, life and death are immeasurable. All three depend on each other to stay in balance and require careful attention learning to do things differently and keeping faith with the future, not leaving space for regret. Immeasurable. One. For the duration of this poem, imagine, behind your belly button, coiled, retractable, you carry a tape measure passed down from your mother. Inside its ergonomic circular case, a little snail-shell world, the tape lies sleeping. If you tug its silver horn to draw it out, you'll see the laddered markings of inches inching and their fractions fractioning along its quivering length, metric and imperial. For the duration of this poem, all mass, all amplitude, let's call them years or months, days, or those ever-shrinking minutes you spool out so recklessly, as if your tape, like nothing else on earth, had no end to its tail. On the contrary, one day, the mechanism will fail, give up, its measuring days over. And snapped back, that's the full extent of your imagining. Two. In a world of second chances, what if those dark spaces behind your navel in your gut were your own brain's hollows, the only centre you knew, as Eastern medicines always maintained. And with your mother's milk, you learned it held the whole world too. Wouldn't you sense more deeply what time is made of, beneath your skin, within your breath? Might you measure it better, all the time and all the world that was given you, trusting each thing's connected, like in this poem, a set of, let's call them interlocking boxes, for keeping things in and giving them away? What if, in this world of second chances, which is, let's be honest, in fact, our last chance, you chose to act as if it were true, which it might be. Imagine, what then?
In Our Element is presented by me, Linda France. It's a Sonderbug production with New Writing North in association with Newcastle University and it's supported by the Audio Content Fund and Arts Council England. Thank you for listening. We come from fire, come from snow. Bring us your gold. Love the haiku, love the sonnet, love the quatrain and the couplet, love the words, from East Leeds FM. So that was episode eight of In Our Element, produced by Sonderbug and presented by the poet Linda France. You'll find all the other episodes on Love the Words and there are still two more to come. So in a moment we're going to be hearing Molly McGrath who works down at the Leeds Library talking about Tales from the Library, the podcast they make down there that she makes and also about digital literature, something I know very little about. And then finally, we've got the first instalment of a series of stories by Bob McBurney featuring Sergeant Grimshaw. These are really worth listening to. Lovely, perceptive, touching uh, stories written by Bob. You'll hear those in a few minutes. But first, Molly McGrath. So you're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM. And we're in Studio One. And I'm talking to Molly McGrath. Hello, Molly. Hello. Uh, I've been showing uh, Molly round Chapel. And before I tell you what Molly does, and she will explain what she does and where. So, Molly, what do you think of Chapel FM? It's amazing. I can't believe the, the space you've got upstairs. It's really gorgeous. Um, and, yeah, the organ is amazing. And I really love the stained glass that you've got, the chapel stained glass. It's very beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, we commissioned it from a stained glass artist called Zoe Edie. And I forgot to show you upstairs, but there are some uh, squiggles on the on the window, if you notice mm. those, which are audio signatures, basically. So we it, people who were involved with chapel at the time spoke their name into a, a recording device and then that became the, the 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 audio signature as it yeah. were was then engraved into the stained glass to kind of engrave into the origin of the building yeah. really, all the people community and staff who were working at the time yeah well it's really nice that it does kind of keep the essential character of the building as a, as a kind of old chapel but it still has your kind yeah. of more contemporary mark on it that's right that was the idea anyway molly yeah t- you work at the leeds library so tell mm. us tell us what you do there so I'm a projects assistant there, so I help with uh, kind of, yeah, digital projects. Um, so we I make their, their podcast and we recently made a 360 degree tour of the library. Um, so we kind of scanned the inside and then 
put it up online. It's it's similar to Google Maps, basically. Um, and then I kind of, uh, it was really fun to look through the archives and find old images and, and tag them in there and then write little bits about the history of the library because it's really old. It was uh, one of the oldest. It's the oldest proprietary subscription library of its kind in yeah. the British Isles. Uh, and it's, yeah, founded in 1768. The library was founded um, by members of the Leeds kind of, uh, community who were who were interested in arts and science um, who uh, wanted to kind of get together and talk about the the ideas of the day so one of them was Joseph Priestley who mm. is was a, a preacher and and scientist and uh, credited with inventing carbonated water or something <laughs> cool um, so the the idea of the podcast was kind of to to keep that going and get members and notable people in Leeds and people doing really interesting things to come and just have yeah conversations about their work and their relationship mm. to libraries and literature and what do you call it and where can we find it again you saw most of the, the yeah the podcast so platforms. it is tales from the Leeds library um probably the easiest way to find it is to just go to a website and there's a podcast section um or it's on Spotify Apple Podcasts um uh the other one mm. i what's it? amazon music i think yeah. um yeah. but yeah on our website's probably the easiest way to find it so you're usually on the other end of this interviewing mm -hmm. people yes and tomorrow well tomorrow actually we're going to record an episode with you peter that's, so that's very true uh, the, <laughs> i keep <laughs> plugging that will be reversed. <laughs> yeah. yeah um so yeah just we were talking i came in to do um a night but verse mm -hmm. with Hannah Stone and with Sean Street. And you were there, that's where we first met. And I, I asked you, you started talking about digital poetry. Mm. And I was very intrigued about that. And I thought, hmm, now we've got you here because I'm showing Molly Rand Chapel FM. I will ask her about digital poetry because I know nothing about it. So tell us a bit about what it is. <laughs> well, again, I'm not an expert. I'm really just a, an enthusiast. And I, I kind of, I'm interested in... Uh, the kind of digital humanities and, and that kind of thing. But digital literature is, I guess, as, as kind of hard and as easy to define as literature or, you know, what is literature? What is a novel? What is a poem? Um, but essentially it's it's literature that the, it's kind of the digital elements of it are inherent to its its form. It's not just a an e-book because that could easily be printed out and it would remain the same. Digital literature has digital elements that are kind of essential to understanding the the text so there's lots of different types you can have kind of uh, hypertext so that's that's literature with links um you can have video poems um which i'm really keen on actually i found this amazing website uh it's a u.s site called motion poems and they take contemporary poets and contemporary filmmakers and they work together um, and the the poets write the poems, and the filmmakers make a make kind of imagery to go with that, and make a film to go with those words, which I think is a really cool concept. Um, and then you have uh, interactive poems. So there's a really amazing artist I think called Mez Breeze who does these kind of VR renderings of of weird figures, and then the you kind of click around them, and the text is kind of hidden within them, which is really cool. Um, or there's like Twitterature. So that's mm. kind of books mm. that are just made from tweets. Yeah. Um, and then you kind of, you can you can have kind of coded um, digital literature. So that's where the the text is kind of, um, uh, there's, a, there's a program that kind of produces the text. So Chatterbots or 
um uh there was a, mm. a great one that i saw where it was um i forget the book but it was it was a an old book but they'd created a program that scanned the text for images and then searched amazon so as you kind of read the text mm. the amazon product would come up that um yeah mm. it would like so if there was a picture of a tree or something it would search amazon for mm. tree uh which is really cool <laughs> got it okay so that sounds fascinating and yet I, I've, I've probably i've probably seen it and read it and the mm. rest of it without really knowing what that it was a, a kind of genre would you call it a genre i suppose no it's yeah. it's a bit like yeah it's, as you say it's, it's literature it's just in it's just written and designed yeah with with you, you, you couldn't possibly write or design it without the technology yeah and there's a lot of crossover actually with things like visual art uh, and net art and um i think it's really interesting the the uh, similarities with graphic novels and choose your own adventure stories and video mm. games and mm. and that kind of thing that things that play with narrative and um yeah, your own kind of ability to to navigate around um, a narrative, and I think a lot of it has to do with with spatiality. You don't really think of literature; it's words, right? You don't really think of it as constrained by a kind of physical um, linearity, but it really is. Whereas with digital literature, you can play around with that, um, and you can move things around, and the text doesn't have to be followed in a kind of, mm. you know, it's a, it's not necessarily as linear. That's absolutely fascinating. And do and do you? I mean, this is something you you, you do. You read? Do you go online to to read digital yeah. literature? Yeah, I mean, there's amazing the the ELO, the Electronic Literature Organization, right. has wonderful um, archives, um, and there's a there are prizes, and they're a really good way to find digital literature. But actually, one of the really interesting things about it is is archiving it because the technology can quite often go out of date, and I think we're at a stage now where technology and and uh, these kind of digital ways to produce electronic literature have changed so much in the past kind of 10 20 years that actually software that was around to create the first digital literature doesn't necessarily work or run anymore so archiving them is a kind of you know it's a weirdly difficult thing to do yeah it would it, it it would be i guess so some some something that might have been written 20 years ago would be perhaps inaccessible now completely. exactly exactly mm. and and um yeah the the way that you would navigate it wouldn't be the same and, and shows up on different formats differently um mm. which i think is really i mean it's the same problem that you have with with physical books they they kind of yeah. and obviously working in a mm. really old library with a, an amazing historical collection is really interesting because you see the way that books degrade and mm. become unusable and part of a lot of the work that goes on there is is um, rebinding and conserving these books so that they mm. kind of remain accessible. Absolutely. In fact, um, this sounds incredibly egotistic of me to mention this, but there is a poem <laughs> that I that I that is in the collection I was talking about on Mount but verse, which is about about the perishability of the mm. forms of of literature, and um, I was commissioned about 10 years ago to to do to write a poem to be in to be sculpted into park mm. into street furniture which is in um uh yeah Kirkgate. but you know it's it's about i suppose you know you look at that and you think oh it's stone you know it's marble but of course mm. you know, 
it's all going to go. I think archiving is really interesting and it's it's uh, obviously interesting for literature as well and digital literature because of, you know, the internet means that kind of everything that you write or say is accessible mm. into the future. But also it's um, it's interesting in terms of art and, and ideas of archiving and there's this kind of, yeah, and museum theory and stuff and the idea that once you... Once you archive something, it becomes kind of dead in a way. It's then its status changes from a kind of useful, alive object or, or thing mm. to something that's kind of dead and inaccessible and and locked away in a museum. Um, which is, you know, obviously mm. it's not bad to preserve things, but it's it's interesting to think about why we're so obsessed with preserving the past and and how we do that and what that says about you know how how we preserve the past today what that says about the way that we think absolutely and i mean you know gosh the you know just going to the least the least library where you you work it's 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 an archive but mm -hmm. it doesn't feel dead to me at all actually no well it's still yeah. um it's obviously a still a working library yeah. um so and i think that's one of the really great things about it it has yeah. a, an historical collection but we're really keen to to make sure those books remain readable and usable and and um you know i think i had on one of our podcast episodes i was talking to to brian cole who's our bookbinder and we were talking mm. about the book binding and and how to restore a text whilst keeping its you know its its uh its essential kind of qualities and and not changing mm. it into this completely new thing and when you know when do you decide to restore a text or when is its physical kind of embodiment the physical book itself important to its its history and whenever you know we have some books where people have graffitied in the margins and obviously mm. you know it's not encouraged but uh if it's like 400 years old that's a really amazing historical record um mm. and it's those kind of yeah those extra textual bits of information that are often really useful absolutely i mean sometimes written by scribes in some of the, mm. you know, the margins of illustrated manuscripts in the 11th century. Well, we have some amazing, um, amazing old Reformation tracts, um, which are kind of political pamphlets, mm. and some of them are handwritten. So it's amazing. I mean, the kind of the weird zing you get from mm. leafing through like, like handwritten documents mm. from, from hundreds of years ago is amazing, incredible. And yeah, that kind of that weird difference between physical holding a physical object and then just you know seeing it on a digital screen is yeah absolutely we'll never be able to do that with digital literature i suppose exactly. i don't know unless you went into the kind of original programming material or something like that it wouldn't quite be the same thing mm. would it? i don't know well it's been fascinating talking to you and um so thanks molly thanks for coming along thanks and for having uh, me. and uh, yeah we'll i'll I'll see you soon anyway. <laughs> Come on the podcast. Love the commas. Love the apostrophes. Love the colons and the question marks. Love the words from East Leeds FM. No, no, later. No, no, later. No, no, later.
Hello, this is Bob McBurney with the first of a series of stories about Police Sergeant Grimshaw. I'll begin by telling you something about him. He's middle-aged and he lives alone. His wife, Chai Lai, left a year ago without explanation. He's lonely and for the time being all his affection is bestowed on his three house rabbits, Margaret Thatcher, Dennis Healy and Stanley Baldwin, whom he regards as true friends. They alone give him the opportunity to express feelings of loneliness and frustration as he tries, without success, to find romance through the internet. In return, they repay his constant care with a sort of casual indifference as they shred his mail and damage soft furnishings and household items generally. Sergeant Grimshaw is impulsive and accident-prone as he stumbles between emotional and professional crises, and though he tries to hide his feelings with an air of brusqueness, he is quite sentimental. Unbeknown to him, one of his colleagues, Police Constable Brenda, is attracted to him. There is no evidence that lust plays a significant part in her feelings, but she does love rabbits. And now the story. Sergeant Grimshaw's Shepherd's Pie and an Unusual Murder. It's all too easy to be dismissive about a person's appearance, and indeed, were it not for the facial tattoos and the fact that his eyeballs were dyed black, the youth lounging in the chair at the opposite side of the room to Sergeant Grimshaw would have attracted little attention. Emaciated, slovenly in dress and posture, he was nevertheless enjoying the attention of the moment. His mother watched anxiously as he spoke. Sergeant Grimshaw opened his notebook. Your mother says that you knew him before this. Is that correct? Yeah, a bit. He lives next door. Him and his dad are butchers. They have a shop in the market. I went there once. Red bulbs shining on the meat makes it look wholesome. Quality butchers, he said. They always say that, never ordinary butchers like bog standard. It's always quality butchers. The youth paused. Yes, said Sergeant Grimshaw impatiently. Thank you, go on. What happened? What did you see? First, I heard loud banging. My mum was in the lav. At first I thought it was her, he giggled. But it wasn't, it was next door. It was loud, and I went round to see what it was. I mean, the walls are thin, you can hear everything, and it was really loud, that's why I went round. The door was open, so I just went in. And what did you see there? They were in the front room. He was holding her up. She was tied up with string and labels and stuff. She wasn't moving, her head was hanging sideways. At first... He just looked at me. He didn't move like he was frozen. There was blood on his hands. I saw a knife on the table. I was scared. What's happened, I said. I mean, I knew, but I said, what's happened? 
We were going to a party, he said. Then he looked at the knife and smiled. It's like bringing your work home, he said. Then he laid her down on the sofa like she was sleeping, very gently. Then he ran out of the room. I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to touch anything. I came home and told me mum. She phoned 999. We had to wait ages, so we watched tennis on telly. I suppose she was just lying there next door. I couldn't go back. There was no sound or nothing. Mum was crying. It was really scary, knowing she was lying there. I couldn't do nothing. Mum was upset. She said she couldn't see the screen because of the tears. She kept saying, ring them again. Sergeant Grimshaw looked up from his notebook. You little shit, he thought then. Thank you for that, he said. Let's go back to the beginning. You said you heard a noise next door. What sort of noise was it? And so the questioning went on long into the night. The following day, late in the morning and after troubled sleep, Sergeant Grimshaw woke suddenly. Margaret Thatcher, one of his three rabbits, was sitting on his head. She was nibbling his hair. Gently, he pushed her to one side. As he reached for the bedside table, he became aware of a scraping, rattling sound coming from under the bed. With a mounting sense of unease and eyes full of sleep, his fingers groped across the tabletop, finding nothing. Empty. Oh, bugger, bugger. He hauled himself across the bed and hung, head down over the edge. In the darkness, out of reach, Stanley Baldwin was chewing the upper plate of his dentures. In the far corner, he could see his car keys. Despite blood ringing in his ears and an all too familiar feeling of despair, he realised that the phone was ringing. He put his hand over his mouth. Yes, Grimshaw here. It's Brenda, Sarge. Do you want to come in for the interview, Sarge? Yes, I'll be there in about an hour. At Midland Road. Yes, Sarge. Are you all right, Sarge? What do you mean? It was just your voice, Sarge. I'm eating porridge. Oh, right, Sarge. He put the phone down and sat on the bed, stroking Margaret Thatcher. She was his favourite, more affectionate and less confrontational than Stanley Baldwin, certainly more affectionate than Dennis Healy, who spent his days in the kitchen trying to get into the dishwasher. After recovering his teeth, Sergeant Grimshaw dressed with care, aware always that he was putting on weight, he hesitated whilst tying his tie, a Windsor or a single knot. Child I would have said, a single knot, silly, big knot for big man. But Child I was long gone. Recently he'd tried to improve his diet. Somewhere, probably on YouTube, he'd heard someone say that cinnamon was good for you. He knew about cinnamon, 
curly sticks like little cigars in glass bottles he'd looked it up. Amongst other things, it seems that it has aphrodisiac qualities. As one might expect, there were lots of questions about this. One woman had written, Can I put it on my Virginia? He hesitated before putting a small amount on his cornflakes. He was in a hurry now. He was going to be late. He crawled under the bed to find his car keys and... Knocking the dust off his clothing, he murmured words of endearment whilst stroking each rabbit in turn before getting into his car and driving to the interview suite. Brenda was waiting for him in the corridor. "'I don't think he's very well, Sarge,' she said. "'The desk says that he's been talking to himself and singing for most of the night.' Oh, that's wonderful, said Sergeant Grimshaw grumpily. All we need is a singing murderer. Initially, the interview had a dreamlike quality. Matthew Brady, butcher, smiled as he talked. Occasionally he closed his eyes for several seconds and laughed quietly to himself. He answered questions without hesitation, though his answers... Good-natured though they were, might have been to things he was hearing in his head, rather than those being put to him. Brenda's voice was sympathetic. Matthew, why was your wife dressed in paper and string? We'd really like to know that, Matthew. It would help us a lot. Momentarily, Matthew seemed to understand what was happening. We were going to a party, a fancy dress party. Where was that? I can't remember. Never mind, we'll come back to that. Can you tell me anything about the party, Matthew? She wanted to go as a singer, you know, from a girl band. Did something change her mind? Yes, for the good of the business. She agreed to go as a hamper of cooked meats. Could you say that again, Matthew? Without responding, he looked away. After a moment's silence, Brenda said, Was that your idea, Matthew? Yes, I think so. He closed his eyes and smiled, leaning back in his chair. Brenda glanced quizzically at Sergeant Grimshaw and whispered something. He nodded in agreement. Matthew... There was some blood. Can you tell me about that? Suddenly, Matthew burst into high-pitched laughter. Like a child, he sang, Chilli jam, chilli jam, good on sausage, best on ham. They abandoned the interview. Afterwards, they stood in the corridor. What a bloody waste of time that was. He's been having arguments with his dad, you know. What about? said Sergeant Grimshaw. He wanted to modernise the shop, but his dad was against it. Apparently they nearly came to blows. Matthew wanted to do things like having a range of readies. Stuff like chilli con carne and shepherd's pie, rabbit, things like that. Sergeant Grimshaw stiffened. Anyway, it doesn't matter now, he'll get some help. 
She paused, suddenly aware of Sergeant Grimshaw's fatigue, and said, You look tired, Sarge. You're off duty now. You could go home, couldn't you? I'll sort the rest of this out. He might be crazy, but there's no doubt he did it, said Sergeant Grimshaw, and then, acknowledging Brenda's thoughtfulness, he relaxed and said, Yes, you're right. I am tired. I might as well go home. I'm off till Tuesday, so I'll see you then. Sergeant Grimshaw was in his car. Rabbit pie, indeed. That's what Chai Lai said the first time she saw Margaret Thatcher. The bastard. Not her, I mean him, he said to himself, as he swerved dramatically to avoid a cyclist. Sergeant Grimshaw was not a natural driver. During training, he demonstrated an occasional compulsion to steer towards immovable objects. This unnerving behaviour had been accompanied by locked arms and a rigidity of face and body, which in turn had caused several hardened instructors to reflect on their career choices. Even now, many years later, these episodes had not been forgotten, sometimes laughingly referred to as the Grimshaw effect, it was often used as a cautionary tale with new drivers. Despite being blissfully unaware of this aspect of his reputation, Sergeant Grimshaw was driving with exaggerated care. He was gripping the wheel tightly, conscious of the fact that he was preoccupied with thoughts about the interview, but determined to arrive home safely with the luxury of a long weekend ahead of him. He opened his front door with relief, only to see that the day's post had been shredded by one of the rabbits. Most of it was on the hall carpet, though pieces could be seen trailing up the stairs, Tucked between the junk mail and various requests for donations, he saw something that looked official. He collected all the bits of paper and settled down at the kitchen table with the cellar tape and a cup of tea. Dennis Healy took time out to bang his shins in greeting before returning to the dishwasher. Sergeant Grimshaw was unable to make sense of the only official-looking letter, the single piece indicating that you need this account number, torn in half, in order to pay. He searched the house for additional pieces of paper and, finding nothing which was relevant, he gave up in frustration and petulantly threw everything in the bin before kicking it across the room. As it rolled... Its contents spilled onto the carpet. His mood darkened. Depressed and frustrated, he sat and thought about Chai Lai. Life would have been so different if she'd stayed. He wondered why she'd gone, she never said. Maybe it was the rabbits. At first she hadn't liked them, but he thought that she'd grown used to them. 
Maybe it was the English weather. Maybe it was because he was getting fat. Maybe he wasn't much of a lover. Possibly it was none of these things and she was just homesick. He hoped that was why. Any and all of these things he would never know. But the pain hadn't gone away. Even after a year he missed her dreadfully. Wistfully he remembered their first meeting on the self-defence course when she'd thrown him across the room. People had laughed. He had fallen in love. He went into the sitting room and found Margaret Thatcher. He picked her up and held her close. I'd never say anything bad about you. I'll bet she loved you, really. Gently he placed her on a cushion and went upstairs to find his laptop, which, for safety's sake, he kept on the top of the wardrobe. After a long and empty weekend on Monday morning, Sergeant Grimshaw decided that it really was time to make a determined effort to move on with his life. With a cup of tea at his elbow and the gas fire lit, he opened his computer and typed, How to find a wife. In a trillionth of a second, all the pages flashed up. There it was, how easy it seemed. How to find a wife, 15 steps with pictures, top 20 countries to find a foreign wife and why, how to dress for a first date. He looked at the pictures longingly. He tried to imagine himself with the lady who might be Miss Dominican Republic. Dark brown skinned and blazingly beautiful, lounging in the sun legs akimbo in a pink bikini. The catchline said that life with a Dominican beauty is always full of romantic excitement. He closed his eyes and tried to imagine her waiting for him in the bedroom. In his dream he closed the curtains before modestly taking off his clothes in the dark, only to find, to his surprise, that when he put on the bedside light she'd gone. Despite the disappointment, he knew in his heart of hearts that Miss Dominican Republic was probably not dreaming about a middle-aged, slightly overweight police sergeant. Let's be realistic, he said to himself, before abandoning the top 20 countries to find a foreign wife and turning to the practicalities of how to dress for a first date. Following the instructions, he went upstairs to the wardrobe and began to lay out his casual clothes on the bed. He read that it was important to have a variety of outfits which would be suitable for any one of the several occasions which could easily form the basis for the first date. Though he had difficulty in imagining what these different occasions might be, it all felt quite positive. He was in the process of matching ties to shirts and shirts to jumpers and jackets when he heard knocking. Pulling the bedroom door closed behind him, he went cautiously down the stairs and opened the front door 
just enough to see who was there. It was Constable Brenda from the station, though at first out of uniform he didn't recognise her. She was holding a large earthenware dish. She'd practised what she would say. I wanted to tell you that we won't be seeing Matthew Brady again. He got a lot worse over the weekend and they've taken him to City Hospital for assessment and observation. I don't think that he'll be coming back. We've done all the paperwork, everything else, as much as we can at the moment. There's no doubt that he did it, but my guess is that he's definitely away with the fairies. His relief on hearing this was followed by an awkward silence as Brenda remained standing in front of him. Then, quite shyly, she said, On Friday I thought that you were looking very sad, so I brought you a shepherd's pie to cheer you up. Sergeant Grimshaw had never visualised Brenda out of uniform, and he was rolling his mind around possibilities and wondering if he should invite her in when she let out a cry of delight. Almost before he knew it, she was in the hall, on her knees, stroking Stanley Baldwin, who, ever nosy, had hopped down the stairs to see what was happening. Oh, you dark horse, Sarge, a rabbit. I just love rabbits. As if from distance, he heard his own voice say, I've got three. Oh, aren't you lovely? I just want to give you a hug. In the moment, Sergeant Grimshaw was not sure who she was talking to. He wanted to think that it was him. It's possible that he was a sentimental man, or it might have been the build-up of tension during the last few days, but without trauma and unremarked by either of them, tears began to run gently down his cheeks. He was holding the shepherd's pie and looking towards the kitchen. If you could stay, I could put this in the microwave. Later, they sat at opposite side of the kitchen table. They'd eaten the pie. Conversation had been stilted. Brenda was enthusiastic and talkative, but Sergeant Grimshaw had felt overwhelmed. He didn't know what to say next. He would have liked to have invited Brenda into the sitting room where he imagined that they could sit together on the settee, but this was out of the question. He felt that there were too many photographs of Chai Lai on display, and indeed part of him suspected that Chai Lai might be watching him from some great unknown distance. This was the first time since she had left that anyone had come into the house. It was what he'd hoped for. It should have been wonderful. Even the rabbits were behaving themselves, and yet he was completely out of his depth. Eventually, talking stopped. Brenda had listened attentively as he talked about the rabbits, but there came a point when he realised that he was repeating himself and he felt foolish. 
There were so many other things that he wanted to say, but they remained unsaid. It was obvious that Brenda had no wish to leave, but once again he heard his own stupid, stupid voice, this time saying, Thank you for the shepherd's pie. We must do this again sometime. And so it was that a few minutes later they found themselves standing awkwardly together near the front door. The right words from Sergeant Grimshaw could have changed everything. Unfortunately, don't forget the dish was not what Brenda was longing to hear. After that, there was no way back. With a gentle wave and a smile, she was gone, and Sergeant Grimshaw closed the front door and retreated back to his lonely life and his house, which felt even more empty than ever before. Life is so complicated. La-dee-da-dee-da.